throughout all this social unrest and discussions of police brutality, white supremacy, and racism, one organization continues to get mentioned without much exploration. Police unions. The fraternal order of police, as they commonly refer to themselves, exist in many cities representing the interests of officers in their dealings with the city. Different unions have different stipulations in their contracts, but very often what it says in those contracts dictates how situations are handled after officer-involved incidents. Some contracts shield the identity of officers, others ensure the officers continue to get paid throughout investigations, and still others limit civilian oversight power. NPR just did a story on a recent study that tells us that where police unions are present, police-involved killings, particularly of minorities, rises. To Nashville's credit, according to the Police Union Contract Project, many of the problematic stipulations are not in the Metro Nashville Police Department contract. That said, recently we saw officers sent to the homes of two local activists, only to drop the charges hours later, and many, including the ACLU, are calling for Chief Anderson's resignation. In the midst of this upheaval, we reached out to President of Metro Nashville Police Union, James Smallwood, and he was willing to speak with us. Here's that conversation. So I appreciate you doing this. I know it must be a busy time. Unbelievable. I mean, I guess I would just start there. Like what, uh, from the police union's perspective, are the priorities right now? Uh, our priorities maintain to be ensuring that our officers are able to keep the communities that they serve safe. I mean, we want to make sure that their pay benefits and working conditions are good and that their voices are heard and that uh, we all work together to, to make the world a better place. So in, in that equation, um, are, do, you, do you see the, I'm, I guess, I guess the questions I have are more about the role of the police union in all this. Like, sure. do you see the role of the police union as going to bat for officers no matter what, or is it more about finding a balance? Uh, well, clearly Clearly, you have to find a balance. Nobody wants a bad cop gone more than a good cop, right? So having having the mentality that no matter what, we're going to bat for you, that's not really um, what any police officer stands for. And that being said, if you pay for a service and, and you expect to be you expect to be represented, um, we, we've got to provide you with that service. So just because we're doing what – if you're in a traffic crash and you're at fault and you call your insurance company and, and they say, well, you were at fault, so we're not going to cover you, that would be a violation of, of the agreement you had with you and your insurance company. And it would be similar uh, with, a, with a union and their employee. They're asking for representation, and it's our duty to do that. So, so that sounds like you do see it as it's the role of the union to support the officer – first and foremost. I mean, I, I guess that's kind of the thing that people wonder when it comes to police unions. It always seems to be that no matter what the video shows or, you know, that, that, that unions tend to take the side of, of the officer. And it sounds no. like you see that's, that's it not, as, as their that's role. Not no? that's, that's not what I said at all. So you, you're saying it's our role to take the side of the officer. No, it's our role to represent the officer. Okay. And just, just because the officer may or may not be wrong doesn't give us any determination as to whether or not he gets rep- he or she gets representation. So, so it's, it's like a, a lawyer almost. Well, yeah. I mean, there's criminal defense lawyers out there all the time that have a job to do, and sure. their client may be guilty, but they have to represent them. And, and 
that may be the case, as you're seeing with, with George Floyd in Minneapolis right now. There's an officer that was clearly wrong, that clearly has some, some uh, wrongdoing and has been charged with a crime and, and uh, is going to have his day in court. I'm sure he has some sort of representation there, and that's probably something he's come to expect because he's paid for service through, through his union. Um, that doesn't mean his union agrees with what he did. That means they're, they are obligated to provide him with a service. Is part of it uh, so? Is part of it that, like, oh, first of all, there's a there's a um, project called the Police Union Contract Project, and just so you know, the Nashville contract is actually one of the least problematic from their point of view. Uh, it actually got pretty high marks when it comes yeah. to uh, uh, no, police union contracts, but no there are there. that no surprise. No surprise there. No. There, there are. Um, provisions in other contracts around the country that do seem to set off some alarms, though, in instances like this, for instance, you know, protecting pay for police, even when they're found to be in the wrong or when they're under investigation, shielding their identity, blocking civilian oversight. These are things that actually are not in your contract that are in other con other contracts are these things that you asked for didn't get or was that something that you, you guys just didn't think were right to have in these contracts uh those are things that we've not asked for but traditionally uh, i think you need to be careful about um what you may be placing as words that exist in contracts that may not be you're saying uh paying an officer even though they've no they we know they've done wrong i would assume i've not read these contracts you're referring to obviously I know my contract, my, my contract doesn't include that, but I would, I would assume that um, keeping things confidential while there's an investigation underway, that's reasonable. Every officer is entitled to the same due process that uh, any civilian out there on the street has. And the, the problem is when somebody's under investigation, there's not a whole lot of facts to consume and it's very easy to draw a conclusion. And once you've drawn a conclusion, it's nearly impossible, even with facts, to show people that, hey, this is what really happened, and this is why we made that determination. So I can understand the reasoning behind saying, hey, while there's an ongoing investigation, we're going to keep this confidential until we've reached a conclusion. Um, the same exists for, you know, an officer who's under investigation and um, uh, receives his, his or her pay. If, if somebody complains on an officer and they've done nothing wrong and the investigation turns out that they've done nothing wrong, uh, but we've decided arbitrarily to stop paying them because somebody complained on them or, or there's some, you know, investigation underway, uh, that, that, that's a serious problem. You have, you have affected somebody's life very seriously for absolutely no reason. And to jump to the conclusion of guilt for innocence and uh, make an employee prove their innocence, that's not fair in any realm of reasonable uh, representation. And I think that's probably what you're seeing in those other cities. What the other side of that would be is that if you're assuming innocence of the officer, you're assuming guilt of the, the you know, the deceased or no. the victim or whoever that might that's be not in, it at in, all. That, in that instance. That's, that's not even close to the truth. The other side of that is we understand you have a complaint and we want to investigate it fully to get all the facts. It's not saying you're a liar. That'd be like saying, hey, um, 
Joe Smith, we we've arrested you for a theft, and or we're we're investigating you for theft because this individual over here has has accused you of that. But we're going to go ahead and arrest you right now, instead of investigating it and finding the conclusion and make sure that we're getting it right so that we don't affect your life negatively for something that may not be the truth. And it happens quite frequently. I mean, people tend to embellish on story quite a bit, whether whether it's related to law enforcement or not. Um, we all know that there's folks out there that don't want to tell the truth, and for whatever reason, they do that. And, and we have to investigate. We have to get the facts. You have to get it right whenever you're going to impact somebody's life. And that's why officers are entitled to the same due process that civilians are. A lot of the officers <clears throat> that we've seen involved in some of these incidents, it turns out have had a number of complaints against them. Derek Chauvin in, in Minneapolis, for instance, had something like 17 complaints and was involved in some pretty uh, high level incidents before that. Uh, it, what is the um, general rule of thumb for how many or, or how many of these incidents are, are, allowed before there's some sort of consequence with an officer and, and does that have something to do with the by the way I'm a union guy I'm, I'm in a union myself so I'm, I'm very much pro-union I'm just trying to understand the role the union plays in providing protection for people that may have problematic records uh, well I think if you if you research this topic appropriately at least for our agency you're going to see that 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 protection that is attached to this narrative that's traveling across the country, it's not as it's not as much protection as people think, at least not here in Tennessee or in Nashville. Um, there is no there is no solid number uh, of of complaints or investigations that will automatically trigger some sort of a termination. That would be completely unreasonable um, because we have hundreds of thousands of encounters over our career as individual officers. And any of those could turn into a complaint justified or not. And they could be as minuscule as the officer was having a bad day and he was rude to me. And so if, if you're rude, should we be firing them? No. Uh, if an officer is rude four or five times, should we be firing them? No. There's, there's a progressive discipline scale in place. Um, and those officers are counseled and, and trained to try and change the behavior, just like any other disciplinary scale that you see in society. Uh, but to jump to the worst possible conclusion of what's, well, if this guy's had five or six complaints, let's fire him. Let's look at the totality of the circumstances. Let's look at what instances those complaints were. And it's easy just to go, oh, well, there's nine complaints in Officer Smallwood's file. Um, so obviously he's a bad cop. Well, were those nine complaints uh, unfounded? Did somebody review them and find out that eight out of nine of them were based not in truth, but the department investigated and found out that there were things that came into play that made them not factual or, or there was a reasonable explanation? You know, officers get complained on all the time for writing traffic tickets simply because somebody doesn't like to receive a traffic ticket. Does that mean that's a bad officer? No, that means that uh, somebody's not happy about the outcome of an encounter, and that's not something that we can control. So, who, uh, whose discretion about, is it? I'm sorry. Whose discretion does it end up being for what happens to the officer? Is, is it just up to the senior presiding officer, you know, whoever's in charge, or is it uh, so you it, get involved in that? 
No, no. The, I mean, the union re- will provide a representative um, just so that the individual who uh, – and, and that's only if the individual requests one. So if the individual says, hey, I'd like a representative to sit with me, I've never been through this before or whatever, uh, we'll provide a representative. But uh, the we don't have any influence on what the outcome of an investigation would be. That would be a conflict of interest for us. So uh, folks that are attached to either – an internal affairs unit or uh, office of professional accountability. Um, their independent um, offices will investigate the officers and claims of wrongdoing, and then they'll come out with a finding. Or in more minor cases, like you know, I, I stopped a, somebody today and they're upset about a traffic ticket they received. Uh, the direct supervisor of the officer will review and uh, and make recommendations on on how to proceed. Gotcha. Well, there there has there is a study that NPR just did a Planet Money episode about, um, and and the finding by an economist was that in cities where there is the presence of a union, that killings, police killings, shootings do go up, and the idea being that I think the idea is that of of, of minorities, and the idea I think is that you know there's a job security. Do you feel like job security plays a part in some of these instances, or do you think that it's Absolutely just not. Ra- randomly where it happens? <laughs> well, and I guess my question on that study would be, did, did those studies all encompass uh, major cities? Or what are all the variables that come into play? Because just saying, well, where, there's a, where, where there are police unions, there's more killings. Um, look at the facts of the case. We're, we are trying to find reasons to blame police unions for things that happen that are outside of our control. We're trying to find things to blame police officers for things that happen that are outside of our control. The the Minneapolis one incident is one that should have never happened. I agree 100%. And you've seen organizations and agencies from all across the country come out and condemn those actions. That should be a very clear signal to you that we recognize when wrongdoing happens and we're willing to point it out. You also say, well, there's more killings in a city because there's a year in there. Surely you see how ridiculous that sounds. Sure, that's a fair point about the other variables in the study. Uh, but but there are things like, like I mean, the Minneapolis – you seem like a very reasonable guy. The Minneapolis police union president is out there saying all kinds of stuff. You know, so they're not always as reasonable as you seem to be. St. Louis was a similar situation, you know, so it seems like they're – tend to be a, a, a certain bravado or, or challenging of the narrative by police unions sometimes. And I think that's why people tend to assign that, that role to them in these situations. Um, what, I just want to get to kind of what your – do you think that there's something wrong in, in the country with police community relations and – if so, like, what would your recommendation be? You know, I mean, I think right now we're at a boiling point. People are looking for answers. Do you, as a president of a police union in a major city in the South, have any thoughts about what actually can be changed? You know, I think um, at least for the Fraternal Order of Police here in Nashville, uh, of course, I'm always looking to do better. I'm always looking to improve. But certainly, we are always engaging our community and trying to find new ways to build bridges. Uh, the FOP has a, a youth camp that we've had for more than 50 or 60 years um, that, that 
actually goes into the community and has kids that we deal with when we identify kids on a call that, that you know, may need a little bit of, of uh, relationship building with the police or are down on their luck or for whatever reason, the officer has said that uh, that child could benefit from a, a free camp week with with a police officer. They'll sign them up, and then we will take them for a week long period to to our youth camp, and we will we will work all week long with them by you know playing basketball or baseball or kickball or taking them swimming in the lake or fishing or kayaking or whatever. there's a various host of different uh, activities that we do, but the whole concept is to build positive long-lasting relationships with those kids that will pay dividends long-term because they need to learn that we're their friends, not the enemy, right? Um, that's, that's huge for us. That's one of the biggest, um, one, of the, one of the things I'm most proud of as our organization moves forward. We've expanded on that to reach out to our community when we can identify people that are in need of financial aid, where there's no social program that can step in and help, where there's no um, you know, welfare program that can say, hey, we understand you need help with this. Here's, you know, here's, we're going to help you with it. We're going to help you overcome that adversity. Uh, officers can actually reach out to the FOP and say, hey, uh, we're here on this call, and, you know, Mrs. Smith has three children who are sleeping on the floor because they can't afford beds for their kids. Can we buy bunk beds for them? And the FOP will actually step in and purchase bunk beds for these families. And, and work to build that positive relationship. And you've seen uh, things from uh, like West Precinct where they've developed a community engagement team and you've seen significant reductions in crime in their 40th and Clifton area where that engagement team has been working. An area that had the highest crime in that precinct has now seen significant reductions because of that engagement with the community. Mm-hmm. And does that mean that we're, everything we're doing is working? No, it doesn't. We can do better. Uh, we should be doing better. You know, the FOP, as much as as much as we'd like to, we there there are time constraints. You know, we need to be sharing conversations with people from our community. We need to have sit downs and share perspectives from both sides because if if one side does not understand fully the perspective of the other side, we will never accomplish our goal, which is to make our community a safer and stronger place. Do you think it helps when officers? Sorry. Do you think it helps when officers live in the area that they? working you know what's very concerning about that question is um the officers of the metropolitan national police department simply cannot afford to live in their communities Mm -hmm. they can't they cannot afford to live in the nashville community um and so it's very difficult to answer that question because we're simply not paid enough to, to survive the living wage and survive the cost of living in nashville uh, we are driven out by high increases in the cost of living and and not keeping up with salaries. But I think, um, you know, it's important that we do continue to have those conversations with our community. And police officers are human beings. We're not perfect, but we strive to do everything we can to help. And you see them as Sunday school teachers, as baseball coaches, as, as Boy Scout leaders, you know, whatever you name it. When they're not wearing the uniform, they're generally engaged in their community anyway. So we're not just a badge in a uniform. We are human sure. beings. We're people, and we are out there engaged in every aspect we can possibly be. We just want to help make the world a better place. I asked this next one acknowledging that Nashville has not been really a part of this, uh, but we've seen a lot of videos of police. First of all, let me acknowledge, we've seen a lot of looting and destruction on the part of People, you know, I would say the vast majority of them peaceful protests, 
there obviously has been some problematic stuff, including here in Nashville. On the flip side, the vast majority of police have handled themselves well. We've also seen a rash of videos where police have gotten out of control and, and done things that were completely unnecessary. There's something like 500 examples of it in the past two weeks. When you see those videos, does it, does it feel like that's actually doing police a disservice when they act that way, or does it feel like they might be, there might be a justification for it? So here's, here's where we come into the, to the problem. And this is where you'll go back to, well, police, police unions are just there to stand up and protect officers, whether or not they're wrong. I don't know the facts of a situation that happened in Buffalo, New York, or, Louisville, Kentucky, or, you know, St. Louis, Missouri, wherever any of these protests may have taken place. Uh, I know what, what is captured in the 30-second video, but I have questions, right? Sure. I, I want to know, were, were officers giving reasonable commands to leave the area? Was the, were they given ample time to leave and the person either uh, refused or charged at the officers or walked towards the officers? Um, those are all variables that come into play. And it would not be appropriate for me without getting all the facts to comment as to whether or not that was right or wrong. I can comment as to whether it looked right or wrong, but that would be very reckless. I guess um, the other, the, the thing that, you know, just I'm playing devil's advocate here, I know, but sure. like that doesn't always seem to be extended to people who aren't police. When you see things on tape, you know, when you see like Minnesota, there was a tape of officers driving by, people walking on the highway and guy just stops and pepper sprays a guy from behind for no reason and drives off. Like, it seems like in the, it just, it just creates this air of distrust, which feels like it I, makes you guys even less safe in the end. I guess I, I I'm yes. not sure what event you're talking sure. about because I've not seen it. Okay. Um, I'll send you some links. <laughs> um, yeah, please do. I, I definitely will. All right. And then uh, I, I guess I sort of, I appreciate you taking the time. To, to do this. Uh, the last thing I'll ask you about, and I think I already know the answer, but, you know, there is a, a refrain, I guess, is what I would say from activists right now to defund the police. And, mm -hmm. you know, pe some people are taking it literally, and, and some people mean it literally, which is like, let's not have police anymore. But other people mean it as sort of like, well, police budgets in comparison to what we spend on other priorities like education, healthcare, that kind of thing are fairly bloated. Memphis, for example, it's, you know, it's, un, it's a vast majority of the budget in Memphis. I actually don't know what it is in Nashville, whereas we're like spending nothing on education in Memphis and, and uh, from, from the city budget. And then, you know, housing is a small amount. Uh, the argument that people make is if we were spending more on other priorities, then your job would be easier because it would be less, you know, there would be less militarization of police, there would be less imprisonment, and essentially that it's a vicious cycle, that the more we spend on policing, the more we spend on locking people up, the more people are down on their luck, the more they're going to commit crimes, and if we just break the cycle and start spending on other things and invest in people and trust people, that that might actually ultimately help your job out. What do you think about that philosophy? So the reality is um, there are always going to be bad actors in our society. There are always going to be people out there who are willing to rob other innocent people, who are willing to burglarize people's homes, who are, are willing to break in and kidnap children and continue the sex trafficking um, rings that exist in our society. Uh, there are horrible things 
that we see as police officers on a, on a daily basis. And, and while social and, and community projects are great and they should be funded and absolutely we should be focusing on trying to get people to stop doing that, these are always going to exist in our society. And when somebody robs you and you've defunded the police, who's going to come? Who's going to answer that call and saying we need to take money away from law enforcement to fund these community projects is a lot like saying we need to rob Peter to pay Paul. We're not doing ourselves any service by saying defund the police, defund the police, defund the police. That's not the solution. The solution is to find new ways, new creative and innovative ways to have our society reduce the violence to reduce the victimization of our communities, to reduce people terrorizing our neighborhoods. Uh, when we find those real solutions, uh, I think you'll see that that problem will solve itself. Policing is, is not uh, the crux of all of our socioeconomic problems that exist in America. We are a nation of laws. Unfortunately, those laws have to be enforced because not everybody wants to follow them. But, uh, so I, I think it's I a very dangerous idea. Sorry. I agree with you that it's not the crux, but what, they, what others would say is that it's also maybe not the answer to everything either, and that we tend to always turn to the police to handle things like mental health issues and, you know, that kind of thing, and, and well, maybe that there's too much on the plate of police that actually they're not really properly trained for. I would agree that we could use more training and that uh, police people turn to the police for far too much. Um, there are things that we need more, like mental health response. Absolutely, we need more training for that. But here's the thing. When the call comes in, um, say there's a, an individual suffering with a mental health crisis, and that individual either has a knife or a gun, are we going to send a social worker to that house by themselves to deal with that mental health crisis and have them take all the risk? And, and I think the reasonable person in society says that doesn't make sense. That's why law enforcement exists. We stand the line between the danger and, and, and we stand the line between the chaos and civility in our society. And while, yes, bringing a social worker uh, to deal with a mental health crisis, there are crises beyond that that are real dangers to our society that need to be resolved first. And sometimes that can't always happen. So it's not reasonable to say, well, if we fund all these social issues and we fund all these community projects, then we won't need police officers anymore. Uh, to me, that just doesn't make any – even if I wasn't a police officer, that doesn't make any sense to me. It doesn't stand to any kind of reason or logic. Do you understand why maybe black people feel that way in general? Why they feel what way? Why they, why they feel like that they can't really trust, you know, to – like black, I know black people who are afraid to call the police even when they need a, a cop. You know, you know, and I think that's where we need to get back to um, having reasonable conversations that aren't based in emotion and rhetoric. You, I can see why, especially when you've got uh, folks who are who are villainizing law enforcement, why there might be some concern. But frankly, law enforcement exists to to help and intervene when there's a problem. And uh, when you when you look across the country. Let's just look at Nashville. Nashville has over 1 million police contacts per year. 99.9% .9 of those contacts end in a positive or productive way. There are a few that do not, and those are held, those are held to a, the officers that are involved are held accountable for their actions. But for the majority, 
just like you said earlier, there's peaceful protesters, but there's a few people in those in those crowds who want to be agitators and create problems and riot and loot and steal and pillage. And we ask the police to stand there and deal with those problems. The same the same exists in the law enforcement profession. The majority of us are here to serve our communities as counselors, as social workers, to intervene when there's a crisis, to, to help where help is needed. And there are a few that get painted that, that are that make mistakes or are bad actors and they paint the entire profession with those few that make those bad actions. And I think that's where we need to have those real conversations with people in our communities and say, look, this isn't this. If you want to be reasonable, we'll be reasonable. If you want to talk facts, we'll talk facts. But if you want to go, well, everybody's bad because one person, but that standard doesn't apply to us. That's not reasonable. It's not logical. And and that's where we get lost in the weeds. Is there enough de-escalation training? Uh, you know, we're, we are huge proponents of de-escalation training, um, and, and we're also huge proponents of training in general. Frankly, there's not enough training. We would love to train more, um, but training costs more, what, people and money. It takes more people to man the streets while officers are down getting more training, and it costs money to, to train those officers. Those are things. When, when that, you say training, what are you thinking of? Training in general, all, all across the board, um, you know, whether whether it be – uh, uh, mental health crises or de-escalation or any of the training that may pertain to the law enforcement profession. Yeah, those, we need more training. We're, we're always saying train us more, train us more, train us more. Uh, but there are limitations on how much training is reasonable and how much we can actually get done. Would your officers be receptive to it? We already have de-escalation training. Yeah, absolutely. We'd be receptive. No, I, I mean other training. stuff. I mean like mental health issues and, and things like we, that. Like I, we I already wonder have. If yeah. So if you look at the, if you, if I'm sure if you ask the police department, they'll show you the curriculum. Uh, if you look at the curriculum, there's already mental health training. There's already, uh, yeah. you know, those kind of things that people are saying police officers need to be trained. We have implicit bias training. Mm-hmm. So we are doing these things. We have de-escalation training. We are doing these things proactively um but there's one thing to remember and that's de-escalation requires cooperation and it's a two-way street and as much as we would love for every situation to de-escalate it's just not always the case there are people out there who do not want to comply there are people out there who are looking for a fight and we can de-escalate all we want and they will not cooperate with that de-escalation tactic and we have to rise to the level that they're at and at that point because we have just as much right to go home at the end of every shift as anybody else does. And if somebody doesn't want to work with us and de-escalate as we try to de-escalate a situation, then we have to come to their level to make sure that that threat doesn't continue to threaten our community and ourselves. Just as a final question, quick tangent. Uh, there's a bill right now for constitutional carry, basically permitless carry uh, in Tennessee Law, I know there's some law enforcement officers that are against it. Do you guys have a position on that? Um, so any any uh, this, this is going to sound like a cop out, but any uh, state legislation comment has to come from our state FOP office, not from a local. Gotcha. So <clears throat> okay, well James, I appreciate you doing it. Um, I again, I'm a union guy. Uh, I, I sympathize. I, I think that you're you know a reasonable guy, and I just definitely you know. I, I, I think there's different union presidents throughout the country that are going to give you different answers and different attitudes. And, you know, 
I, I, I just appreciate you taking the time and, you know, I hope you understand that people are just scared and, and, and frustrated and, and, you know, in the age of video, this stuff really leaves a lasting impact. So, you know, that's where people are coming from. And I, and I just hope the lines of communication are open. You know, I hope you guys will stay open to some of the ideas because people are going to feel like something needs to change to feel, you know, like, like this actually amounted to something here. So hopefully that'll be something that doesn't, that, that is mutually beneficial. Well, I, I I appreciate that, and and uh, as long as things are reasonable, I think everybody's open to the conversation. It's when when things um, become very unreasonable, or people are painting pictures that that don't really exist, uh, that are not based in reality or not based in fact. That's that's when we start to lose control as a society. So I think we need to be very careful about. Well, I think I think we all need to be communicating better. I think we all need to be sharing perspectives. Um, a three-second video does not show what a 30-minute call was, and it doesn't show all the facts and dynamics. And, and uh, we've seen that time and time and time again where somebody has taken cell phone video, narrowed it down to a three-second clip, sent it out, and then when we get the full video, uh, we see, oh, well, you know, X, Y, and Z happened that led to this, and now when you see all the facts that surround it, it's reasonable. That's not explaining what happened in Minneapolis. This is just a general talking of what we see time and time again when it comes to law enforcement videos that get released on the internet. Minneapolis is a completely independent and separate issue that should have never happened. George Floyd should be alive today. Um, unfortunately, there's nothing I can do to change that. I'm in Nashville. It, it's not just like there's been a bunch of them, you know, I mean, we saw with Eric Garner, like there, there's sort of been a buildup here, you know, if it hadn't been for the 30 or 40 that were on video, you know, I mean, this is, this is an explosion. This isn't, an isolated incident, you know, I think that's, sure. that's part of the problem, um, but I, I, I understand what you're saying. Okay. Uh, all right. Well, thank you for, for your time and uh, maybe down the line we can circle back. Sure. Thanks.